Good evening. My name is Emily Duffy, and I'd like to welcome you all here this evening for a discussion on the recent Supreme Court decision of Obergefell versus Hodges. The size of this crowd is a great indication of how deeply important marriage and religious freedom are to all of us. We are fortunate to have three terrific panelists with us today who can address the pastoral and legal questions that have come to the surface in light of this landmark decision. Dr. Susan Timoney has been appointed by Cardinal Whirl as a Secretary for Pastoral Ministry and Social Concerns at the Archdiocese of Washington, where she has overseen the evangelization and pastoral planning for the last eight years. Dr. Timoney earned her doctorate in sacred theology at the University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome and wrote on the feminine dimension of discipleship. John Garvey is the president of the Catholic University of America. He has practiced law with the firm Morrison and Forrester in San Francisco and has taught at the University of Notre Dame, University of Michigan, and the University of Kentucky. He served as dean of Boston College Law School for 11 years before his appointment at CUA. He is the author or co-author of numerous books, including Religion and the Constitution. Helen Alvare is a professor at the George Mason University School of Law, where she teaches family law, law and religion, and property law. She publishes on matters concerning marriage, parenting, non-marital households, and the First Amendment religion clauses. Her work includes being the faculty advisor to the law school's Civil Rights Law Journal, a consultant for the Pontifical Council of the Laity, and an advisor to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. She cooperates with the Permanent Observer Mission of the Holy See to the United Nations as a speaker and a delegate to various United Nations conferences concerning women and the family. With that, I'll hand the floor over to Dr. Timoney. Thank you. Good evening. It's a delight and a privilege to be part of this panel. I've been asked to address the response of, um, of parishioners and parishes uh, to the ruling. And so to do that, um, I'd like to start by reflecting a little bit. Like all of you, I've done a lot of reading over the last couple of days. And I found responses to the ruling by a group of philosophers who for the most part were in agreement that marriage itself is an outdated institution and still in the business of the subjugation of women. So I thought to myself, well, these are not really my kind of people. <laughs> However, one of the writers, Kevin Vallier of Bowling Green University, raised the question of the impact of religious organizations and, tax, and their tax-exempt status if they are found to be discriminatory in light of this legislation. He cautioned that the courts needed to move carefully because he said, imagine this, hundreds of thousands of sincere, informed Muslims, Jews, and Christians engaged in civil, in civil disobedience, quickly converting their opposition to same-sex marriage into the mark of a martyr. Imagine this. This is not the first time this seed has been planted. But I think before we set out to prepare for martyrdom, I'd like to suggest that maybe what we need to practice is mysticism. Karl Rahner, a German Jesuit, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century, wrote an essay in the years following the Second Vatican Council, where he was asked to talk about what the life of a Christian might look like toward the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. And this is what he said. The devout Christian of the future will either be a mystic and, and who has experienced something or will cease to be anything at all. He reasoned that for the devout Christian living and practicing the faith, they will no longer be sustained and helped along by a unanimous, manifest, and common public conviction. He goes on to say that they will need the courage of the martyrs to live in a world that's increasingly hostile to Christians. 
And so my question tonight is, what would a mystic's response look like to this ruling, both as individual Catholics and as parishes? And by mystic, this is what Karl Rahner means and what I would suggest we, we focus on. One who has a living relationship with Jesus Christ, who finds their sustenance in the sacraments, and who holds fast to the truth that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I would add a number of other virtues to that, particularly in these days following the ruling. And the first is to say yes to hope. Often, when moving toward despair, I like to return to John the 23rd's address at the opening of the Vatican, Second Vatican Council, now more than 50 years ago. And he cautions us about giving in to the prophets of doom, but rather to find our hope in the truth in which we are planted. And he reminded us that the intention of the council was to give the world the whole of the doctrine, which, notwithstanding every difficulty and contradiction, has become the common heritage of mankind, to, tra to transmit in all of its purity, undiluted and undistorted. He goes on to say it's a treasure of incalculable worth, not indeed coveted by all, but available to all people of goodwill. And he goes on to say that it's our duty to treasure it, not as a museum piece of which we are curators, but earnestly and fearlessly to dedicate ourselves to the work that most needs to be done in this modern age, pursuing the path with which the church has followed for almost 20 centuries. And related to this confidence and hope is the confidence to be courageous. Echoing the spirit of John Twenty-Third, at the closing of the Synod in 2012 on the new evangelization, the Synod Fathers said, now is the time to seize new opportunities for evangelization with a serene courage that affects the way we look at the world. We're not intimidated by the circumstances of the times in which we live. Our world is full of contradictions and challenges, but it remains God's creation. And so I think the first thing we have to say is there ought to be no rooms in our hearts, in our minds, in our pastoral ministry for pessimism, but rather confidence in the Lord who has conquered death and the spirit that moves and acts in the world. And so we can first take confidence and hope in the witness to the truth of marriage. Now, not long after um, the D.C. Council legalized same-sex marriage, I was at a cafe here in D.C. sitting outside, and over in the corner of the cafe were um, two men, each holding infant babies. And as I sat down and grabbed my coffee and looked over, I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is the world that is to come. I wonder if it's a mom's morning out. I wonder what's going on there. And a little boy, a toddler, not more than four years old, came up with his mom and his dad. And of course, he made a beeline for the babies. And he looked at the babies, and he looked at the dads, and he looked up, and he said, where are the mommies? And his mother turned to me, with a look of horror on her face. And I said, he's only asking everything that we were thinking. And President Garvey, you'll be delighted to know he was sporting a Catholic U sweatshirt. <laughs> and so the first thing I want to say is the truth of marriage has not changed. Marriage is written into the hearts of men and women, as this four-year-old boy knew. The Supreme Court does not have the final say on marriage because marriage is the work of God that celebrates the importance of sexual complementarity of man and woman, and in the unique way that they somehow image the likeness of the God who is triune. As Pope Francis goes on to say, without this relationship, we can't understand what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. 
So all of us know here that marriage is the visible sign of God's freedom, fidelity, and fruitfulness of his love for his human people. So firstly, the church has never and will never talk about the sacrament of marriage as a rite, because it's not a rite. It's one of our two sacraments of service, along with holy orders, a sacrament to which a man and woman are called to be self-gift to one another, to love one another as Christ loves his church, to be a visible sign of the nature of God's humanity. And so no couple who presents themselves for marriage has a right to it. In fact, our priests have an obligation not to marry any couple who they think are not entering into this freely or with an understanding of its sacramental nature or with the ability to make it lifelong and fruitful. So perhaps a good that could come from the Supreme Court decision is now we have the opportunity to say what makes a sacramental marriage different. And what I would have to say is we need to do a better job at marriage preparation and marriage enrichment, at mentoring couples through every stage of married life. We need to redouble our efforts at helping couples and families understand what it means to be a domestic church. I think, as Carl Rahner suggests, it lies in entering fully into the grace of the sacraments and becoming practical mystics. That is to say, understanding and recognizing and celebrating a mysticism that comes in everyday life, from a marriage that's rooted in, the un, in God's unreserved love for us and our unreserved love for God, our spouse, and our neighbor. A practical mysticism is a genuine Christian who has a bold but often hidden confidence that ordinary daily life is the stuff of authentic and real Christianity. The gift of Jesus is that by being Jesus, he sanctified the ordinary. He prayed, he went to the temple, he worked, he shared meals with friends, he cared for his mother and his father. So how is it that we can call imperfect people who enter into a less, less than perfect marriage to be the domestic church, to share in the perfect love of the Trinity? We hold this tension, right, that by grace that what is imperfect can become perfect in light of God's love. And so what does this mean for parish ministry? One of my favorite images of the parish, I think comes from my time living in Rome and finding a beautiful fountain around every corner, is the parish as the village fountain. It was an image of John the 23rd, where he talked about the presence of the church in the midst of men and women's lives where all can find drink and refreshment in the gospel. And so what we have to learn as parishes is to say and to demonstrate convincingly that we welcome everyone at our parish. Every person seeking Jesus is welcomed. That we celebrate that one can come as they are. But unfortunately, when we say today you can come as, as you are, most people then decide it means to stay as you are. And here is where we know that that's not the story of an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that our parishes are places of encountering Jesus in the word and in the sacrament, in fraternal community, in charity, and in service. People do not believe that we can be at the one time, at the one time welcoming and yet say no to same-sex marriage. They think that if we discriminate in one area, we're discriminating all around. But it's rather the mystical tension, is it not, of the already but not yet. Every person who enters our parishes are sinners, yet they're called to be saints. 
Every person is called to live in the world, but not be of the world. And so as parishes, we have to be quite capable of welcoming individuals and families. What will it take to make a serious commitment to people to meet them where they're at and to dialogue with a goal of a deeper relationship with Christ? Our churches are filled with people and couples in irregular marriages and non-traditional families. But there's a place for everyone who comes on Jesus' terms, who knows that Jesus himself says that our teachings are hard, and who knows that some walk away. But I also know that our parishes are places that need to be more supportive, need to provide groups and pastoral counseling and opportunities for men and women with same-sex attraction who desire to live faithfully. The few we have are not easy to find, and there are not enough for those seeking them. We need to prepare our pastoral ministers and our school teachers to be able to teach the truth of the faith in a way that's inclusive yet clear. We need to be able to say, for example, that the normative model of family life is a mother and father and a child or children, but to know that not all families look like that, but that's God's design, and that's the best design. We can say that in our classrooms, and we can uphold the beauty of family love as it's expressed in numerous ways. There's no doubt we have some challenging times ahead. We can expect that our tax-exempt status will be challenged. We can expect that some parishioners and school parents may question the presence of children of same-sex relationships in our schools and our parish programs. We can expect they'll question the ability to say yes. But thankfully, we have a vision for the new evangelization. And we have a witness of Pope Francis in helping us find a language and a practice that gives us the ability to live in this sacred tension. But I think what we most need to consider tonight are what are our individual responses? Because what our parishes need to plea are places of the formation for discipleship. Each one of us here has to find the courage and the skill to articulate what you believe and why you believe it. The actions of the court suggest we can no longer assume that there is an objective truth and a transcendent design. We can't leave the defense of the truth, the defense of the free exercise of religion, to our bishops. We're not a corporation, but rather a family. And so here is where we need to exercise our practical mysticism, where we need to choose the life of a mystic, if not the life of a martyr. Because in the grace of baptism, we've been anointed with sacred chrism. We've been chosen by God, claimed by Christ, and through the Holy Spirit named priest, prophet, and king. And so as prophets, we're called to announce Jesus Christ by life and by word, to be, lit, to be witnesses of life springing forth from faith. This was exactly what compelled people to see something different in the early Christian communities. In the first century, citizens found the Christian way of life incredibly compelling. People saw in them something different, a compassion, a generosity, a joy in the face of persecution. As St. Paul suggested, they're people who could have given account for what gives them hope. And one of my fears is that we did not engage so much in the fight leading up to this decision because we knew our church would not change. We thought we didn't really need to worry so much because we would find a home in the church. But look how sweeping and fast the change has come upon us. And the door has been opened to even more alarming threats to our ability to practice the faith to be the face of Jesus in the world. 
We may have a lot to lose, or we may lose nothing as a Christian community, but our communities would lose a tremendous amount if we're not free to exercise that, that love that we have for Jesus Christ. In Washington, D.C. and in Maryland, the church is the largest provider of education, health care, and social services in the private sector, second only to the government. The church's inability to minister freely in the community would be devastating to the lives of our local community. And the church has faced serious threats before, and one thing is always clear. It's never chosen the route of circling the wagons, of isolating ourselves from the world. We, we, we won't go the route, perhaps, that we see in the Amish community. On the other hand, we've never simply adopted the prevailing trends of the popular culture. The church has always chosen, rather, to engage in the world, to believe in the good news and that it's good for the world, whether be a person believes or not. We've chosen to be salt for the earth, but we've got to engage in the conversation. We have to be a light to the world, a lamp on the hillside. I'd like to suggest beginning this week at your 4th of July barbecue, when someone says to you, how about that Supreme Court decision? And with a big smile, you're going to be able to say, I think they got it wrong because. And I think there's people out there hungering and listening. This past winter, I was working with a group of parishioners on the response to the questions that the bishops were posing in preparation for the synod. And one man introduced himself, and he said, I'm here because of same-sex marriage. And I asked him to say a little bit more. And he said, my wife and I were watching the news when we saw the decision of the D.C. Council. And we looked at each other, and we said, that's just wrong. And we looked at each other, and we said, if that's wrong, then what does it mean for us? And I should say not his wife at the time. They were living together. And he said it meant two things for us. We had to get married, and we had to find a church to call our home. And they found their way to the Catholic Church. And so, if anything, we've got a marvelous opportunity to practice the new evangelization. As George Weigel suggests, now is the time to be able to display the true happiness of lives of solidarity with others, lives that link solidarity to friendship with Jesus Christ and the truth that the church teaches, inviting others to consider a still more excellent way. Thank you. So I'm going to say exactly the same thing as it turns out, but it, <laughs> it'll take me a different way to get there. When I, my, on my first day as a dean at Boston College, at, at the law school, I had a delegation from the Environmental Law Society, and they wanted to know, could they put up different colored wastebaskets in all of the classrooms? And I said, um, sure, if you pay for it. Uh, and they said, okay. And, and I said, you, uh, you realize that recycling is fake, don't you? And, and <laughs> <laughs> there was a kind of stunned reaction, like I had denied the Trinity, or I mean, in olden days, <laughs> or something of the sort. I said, no, 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 it takes more energy to do all that stuff than we actually save doing it. This may have been true at the time. I'm not sure that it is now. I noticed among our students at Catholic an almost uh, religious commitment to the idea of the environmental movement. They have their own rules about dress and diet, no no leather, no meat, you know, they, they have their own holy days, uh, Earth Day is um, fervently observed, they have their own sacred texts, uh, Silent Spring, they have their own mantras, reduce, recycle, reuse, and uh, and they, and, 
and uh, and I have to say that they have changed my mind about the environmental movement. And uh, uh, one of the things I love about the their commitment to it is a kind of refreshing openness to moral arguments. You see this exact same thing in the popular reaction to Pope Francis's new encyclical, Laudato Si. The, uh, the day after the encyclical was released, I saw this from the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, while we can, they said, debate climate change using the tools of science, we cannot hope to find adequate solutions without a shared moral understanding of what it means to take care of each other and the planet. Uh, in the encyclical, uh, Pope Francis proposes a number of moral arguments for why we ought to be concerned about the environment. Um, and they sound natural coming from him. He's the Pope, after all, so it's his job to make moral arguments. Um, but there were almost immediate identical echoes from the culture for the arguments that Francis was making. Let, let me show you some of the parallels. That, um, some of the arguments that he made were arguments about justice, like, first of all, that environmental degradation harms the poor. Here's what Francis said. The deterioration of the environment and of society affects the most vulnerable people on the planet. Here's what the Sierra Club environmental justice policy says. No community should bear disproportionate risks of harm because of their demographic characteristics or economic condition. Here's another justice argument. Francis uh, says that it robs future generations. Here are his words. Intergenerational solidarity is not optional, but rather a basic question of justice, since the world we have received also belongs to those who will follow us. Here's what the Sierra Club says in its environmental justice policy. Future generations have a fundamental right to enjoy the benefits of natural resources, including clean air, water, and land. Some of the arguments that the Pope made weren't um, um, arguments of justice, but arguments about virtue ethics um, th uh, the, that pointed to the effects of destructive behavior on our own character. So, for example, he made uh, one kind of argument was that environmental degradation is inconsistent with human dignity. So read the encyclical and you'll find him saying, it's contrary to human dignity to cause animals to suffer or die needlessly. Uh, PETA retweeted exactly the same message the, the, <laughs> the next day. It was right up their alley. Or uh, Francis makes arguments like how our obsession with consumption makes us a baser people. Here's what he says. Compulsive consumerism affects individuals. People become self-centered and self-enclosed. Their greed increases. So uh, listen to Annie Leonard, who's the executive director of Greenpeace USA. I'm concerned, she says, about consumerism with our seeking meaning and purpose by buying more stuff. Some of the arguments that the Pope made appeal to ideas that, frankly, have more prominence in the environmental movement than they do in garden variety Christian ethics. These are about obligations that arise not from duties to one another, that is to say, principles of justice, nor from concerns about our own spiritual development, the, the perfectionist principles I was just referring to, but from principles that require us to make some metaphysical assumptions, like, for
for example, that we have a moral relationship with the earth itself. Think about that. Here's what Francis said. Human life is grounded in three fundamental relationships with God, with our neighbor, and with the earth itself. Other living beings have a value of their own. Here's what Peter says. Animals have an inherent worth, a value completely separate from their usefulness to humans. Or the Rainforest Conservation Fund. Biodiversity can have a moral value, that is, a value inherent in the organism itself, regardless of the uses to which it can be put by human beings. Or, here's a last one, the notion that we owe reverence to all of creation because it's God's handiwork. Francis says, the Earth's thousands of species give glory to God by their very existence. Listen to what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services uh, have to say uh, about the Endangered Species Act. Eliminating entire species has been compared to ripping pages out of books that haven't been yet read. We're accustomed to a rich diversity in nature. This diversity has provided inspiration for countless writers and artists and all others who treasure variety in the natural world. So, you probably think that you've come on the wrong night and that I'm talking about <laughs> Francis. So let me explain what all this has to do with Obergefell. I think it's odd that as a society we accept moral and religious arguments in protecting the natural order of things in debates about the environment but we rule them out of place in discussions about human affairs. The two cases seem similar to me. Pope Benedict, in one of his encyclicals, Caritas and Veritate, said that the book of nature is one and indivisible. Francis says, how can we genuinely teach the importance of concern for other vulnerable beings if we fail to protect a human embryo? This goes for debates about sex as well as life. Francis says in Laudato Si that there can be no ecology without an adequate anthropology. And then he goes on to quote a speech that Benedict gave to the Bundestag. So some of this is Benedict and some of it's Francis. But this, here's Francis from Laudato Si. Pope Benedict XVI spoke of an ecology of man based on the fact that, quote, man has a nature that he must respect and that he cannot manipulate at will. Valuing one's own body in its femininity or masculinity is necessary if I'm going to be able to recognize myself in an encounter with someone who is different. It's not a healthy attitude which would seek to cancel out sexual difference because it no longer knows how to confront it, Francis said. Well, in our legal system, we answer questions about sex the way we do issues about abortion. We say that individuals must be allowed to make up their own minds. This is what Justice Kennedy had to say in Obergefell. It held that same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marry. Uh, and Kennedy said that the liberties protected by the Due Process Clause extend to certain personal choices, central to individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs. One of these choices is the right to pick your marriage partner. People who ratified the 14th Amendment had no such idea in mind, and I think everybody agrees on that. The court came to what it called its better informed understanding by reaching beyond the Constitution to a principle of autonomy, that is to say, self-governance, or making your own rules. 
People should have a constitutional right, Kennedy said, to define their own identity and beliefs. Choosing your spouse, he said, is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. This isn't a novel proposal. Justice Kennedy invoked the right to, quote, define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life in upholding the right to consenting sexual relations in Lawrence against Texas, and also in confirming the right to have an abortion in Planned Parenthood against Casey. It is, however, a contested idea about the notion of freedom. In Kennedy's view, the, the, in Kennedy's moral universe, the right to freedom is a right to make choices. If I have a right to have a child, I should also be free not to have a child. If I have a right to marry a woman, I should also be free to marry a man. I must, he said, be free to define my own identity and beliefs, my own concept of existence. This understanding about freedom is not inherent in the notion of freedom. It is the dominant um, liberal, um, that is to say, based on the idea of liberty. It's the dominant notion in American law. But it's equally natural to say that freedom is simply a right to act in a certain way without state interference. If, for example, I have a right to drive west, I mean, it makes perfect sense to, have, to say that I have a right to drive west on M Street going to Georgetown. By that I mean that there aren't roadblocks or fines for driving west. It doesn't follow that I have a right to drive east on Main Street. It makes perfectly good sense to say that I have a right to go this way and not in the opposite direction. The idea that freedom is a two-way street is the modern liberal understanding. As I said, its canonical statement is the one that you find in John Rawls's theory of justice. Rawls there famously said that the concept of right is prior to that of the good. Here's what he meant by that. People, all of us in this society, can't agree on what's good. Different people may value different things. Aesthetic enjoyment, sport, sex, prayer, fame, power, Amid these differences of opinions, the best way to design a political community is to allow each person the liberty to do what he or she wants, consistent with a like liberty for everybody else. In that sense, the right, he means the right to freedom, is prior to the good. Each of us has the freedom to choose the good that each of us wants. Each of us has the freedom to define our own identity and beliefs, our own concept of existence. Theory. But the right to sexual autonomy that the court defends in Obergefell is inconsistent with the kind of ecology of man that Francis and sorry and that Benedict are speaking of. Benedict, when he was speaking to the Bundestag, said that human nature is something we must respect and cannot manipulate at will. For Benedict, the good is prior to the right. Here's what he had to say. In order to exercise his freedom, man must move beyond the relativistic horizon and come to know the truth about himself and the truth about good and evil. Thus, the exercise of freedom is intimately linked to the natural moral law which is universal in character and forms the basis of fundamental human rights and duties. Now, let me explain why we're going to be saying exactly the same thing. I think that, I have no doubt that, um, Benedict and Francis are both 
correct in pointing out the inconsistency in our thinking. The progressive sector of society, the young, the green, the, 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 the left, are, are comfortable with appeals to shared moral principles in, dis in disputes about the environment. And the moral ideas that they invoked are not just liberal ideas of justice, you know, the notion that everybody, uh, the poor coming generations, are entitled to equal concern and respect. They include perfectionist principles about the kind of people we ought to be, and even appeals to the intrinsic value of realms of being outside the human circle of life. When it comes to disputes about sex and reproduction, though, we insist that shared moral principles have no place, that individuals are autonomous, that is to say, self-governing. They have a constitutional right to define their own identity and beliefs. There are no principles that we can agree on to form a community. So, we're inconsistent in our appeals to moral reasoning. We're also inconsistent in reading the Book of Nature. The environmental movement sees human life as part of the natural order of things and counsels restraint in fulfilling our own desires out of respect for the harmony of nature. But the pro-choice movement pushes nature aside when it comes to abortion. Is a five-month-old fetus really deserving of less respect than a snail darter? What makes the question of same-sex marriage more difficult is the more generally shared belief that same-sex attraction is, as Justice Kennedy put it, an immutable fact of nature. If the natural law is to be found by consulting nature and our own consciences, what bearing does this immutable fact have on moral questions about appropriate sexual behavior? I think it muddies the waters rather than clarifies them. For one thing, we can't pick and choose the elements of nature that we attend to in forming our consciences. It may be that I'm attracted to men. That's an immutable fact of nature about me, but it's also an immutable fact that my partner and I can't create life or give birth. And this might well influence social policy on the issue of marriage. A society that attached no opprobrium whatever to sexual relations between partners of the same sex might nevertheless reserve the institution of marriage to couples of opposite sexes. As Justice Alito pointed out in his dissent, states might, as he said, formalize and promote marriage unlike other fulfilling human relationships in order to encourage potentially procreative conduct to take place within a lasting unit that's long been thought to provide the best atmosphere for raising children. But what bearing does the natural fact of same-sex attraction have on relationships apart from marriage? That's a more difficult question. I think this is a debate that the Catholic Church, or that the members of the Catholic Church, lost almost 50 years ago when they discounted the teaching of Humani Vitae. Here's what Elizabeth Anscombe said. She wrote a piece called Contraception and Chastity in 1972, just four years after Humani Vitae. And, and I, I'm going to quote her exactly. She said, if sexual union can be deliberately and totally divorced from fertility, then there is no reason why marriage, as she put it, should have to be between people of opposite sexes, nor why sexual union has got to be married union. For my own part, I think that the real marriage issue in contemporary moral life is the fact that straight people aren't getting married 
not the fact that gay people are. In the last 50 years, cohabitation among opposite-sex couples has increased by almost 900%. There were almost 8 million unmarried couples living together in 2013, up from 2.9 million in 1996. Two-thirds of couples married in 2012 had already lived together for more than two years and 40% of the almost 4 million babies born in 2013 were to unmarried women. So the reason for all of this is that we have taken what used to be one contract about sex and lifelong commitment and babies and broken it into three. Sex is no longer about babies, nor even about lifelong commitment. It's recreation at its most frivolous, uh, or maybe just a legitimate expression of affection among some people. The idea that chastity in the narrower sense of continence is a virtue that people straight or gay should cultivate now strikes us as odd. We're a little bit like the little kids in that AT&T commercial. Do you remember uh, they ran two years ago? What's better, more sex or less? It's not complicated. That's the way we think about it nowadays. So in this moral culture, it is no wonder that the proponents of sexual autonomy have succeeded in framing the issue of same-sex marriage as one of equality and discrimination. When sex is not part of one contract about babies and lifelong commitment, why should we privilege straight people over gays? Is there any chance of bringing the culture back around to accepting the Catholic view about sexual relations between men or between women? I don't think that will happen unless and until heterosexual couples change their own behavior. Unless they themselves practice the virtue of chastity, unless they view sex as necessarily connected to marriage and fertility, I don't think they have any moral warrant for demanding it of their gay friends. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I teach both family law and law and religion. So I thought I would talk about this case mostly legally while trying not to be boring or over complex um, so that you could see so you could see it for what it is. It's when I was when it came in on Friday. I'd promised to write for several magazines about it, and I was shaking. And uh, it wasn't that I was shaking just for marriage. It was because if you have a constitution that's whatever somebody says it is, it actually is unnerving. It's unnerving. We think about this as something that happens to other countries. We don't think about it as actually taking place here. I did a radio program in the afternoon where. Um, one of the participants said, we're not talking about crazy men on street corners with sandwich boards saying the end is coming. We're talking about four Ivy League educated justices saying things like democracy is over, etc." And so I wanted to paint for you the picture of, of this opinion. It's, it's silly. It's non-legal. In fact, I actually think one of the best ways of talking about it for all of you who are humorous is to get into the humorous aspect of just how bad it is. 
My husband was sitting at the dinner table the other night, and this was much on our mind, and we were having a Klondike bar. And he says to me, you know what the perfect meme for this decision is? It's a picture of Justice Kennedy and that old question, what would you do for a Klondike bar? And Justice Kennedy would say, hey, I'd redefine marriage for 360 million people. I mean, we, we need to be thinking of conveying just how disreputable and really non-legal you know, people with justices' robes in a legal setting issued it, but it doesn't make it legal, just like it doesn't make abortion medical because you put it in a medical suite with some medical instruments. So um, what I want to do is talk about four points on it so you understand just how off it is. One is to talk about the fact that states always had jurisdiction to define marriage, and now Justice Kennedy He's not just taking it on the Supreme Court, he's really taking it on himself. Number two, um, maybe the most stunning legal development, other than the result itself, is a new way that he articulates, and the word articulate is only two kinds, <laughs> uh, is the new way that he uses words to describe um, how the court in the future should consider due process rights, what we call substantive due process, what it is that the court can find in the Constitution, particularly the 14th Amendment, that is not there in its text, but the court can say exists, okay? So he has a new way of finding those. Three, the systematic, with a scalpel, way that he eviscerated children from all prior constitutional family law cases. And number four, just what we were treated to in the way of Kennedy, the philosophical anthropologist, Kennedy, the sociologist, Kennedy, the underpaid Hallmark card writer for a secular <laughs> therapeutic uh, uh, psych psychological generation, but not Kennedy, the judge. Okay, so that's the points I want to make. So first, regarding states always understood power to define marriage, you know that it's state law that... Uh, says what age you have to be, that it can't be, you know, bigamous, let alone polygamous, that you have to have capacity. The state defines consanguity, affinity, limit, etc. Um, the states obviously define opposite sex as well. Um, most didn't feel any need to mention it until Hawaii um, decided that they were going to legitimize same-sex unions in the 90s. Uh, in fact, it's so clear that the states have always had this jurisdiction that the feds, those of you who know, that one of the bases for federal court's jurisdiction is that you have a conflict between people of different states. It's called diversity jurisdiction. But there's this big abstention doctrine. The feds will stay out of, federal courts will explicitly stay out of everything related to marriage in the past. They will not be adjudicating cases uh, regarding getting into marriage or getting out of it. Alimony, divorce, child, it's all for the states. This has been since the beginning of the United States, okay, until really Windsor gave us the first clue that it would be changing that. So that's the first point. The second point is if you like the Constitution, if you even, you know, like it a little, <laughs> the most disturbing. So, We've been dealing with this in the family arena for a long time, most prominently since 1965 in the Griswold versus Connecticut decision where the Supreme Court looks at the Constitution 
they don't place it exactly in the 14th Amendment, um, and the state shall not deprive you know, its citizens of life, liberty, or property. But they said in 1965 that the penumbras and emanations, they were anticipating a Kennedy-esque justice uh, someday. The penumbras and emanations of various constitutional guarantees meant that there was, from the Constitution, a right to buy and use contraception. It was not there textually, but the court could say it was there. Why could they say it was there? Well, the classic um, way that the court had found non-textual rights in the Due Process Clause was as follows. They would ask, what does ordered liberty in the United States require? Can we conceive of ordered liberty without this right? Or what does the history and tradition of the nation point to? That must be a right, even if it's not there. In the 1990s, there was a significant uh, set of Supreme Court opinions where they said that states were allowed to ban assisted suicide. And in those cases, they articulated an even more specific version of this test, how do we find a non-textual substantive due process right? And they said there that it had to be that the court would describe a most circumcised right, something that was very narrowly presented by circumscribed. Yeah, isn't that what I said? Did I say circumcised? <laughs> I didn't think I did. I, I thought I said circumscribed. But anyway, the most circumscribed right. And it had to be describing of a very specific historical practice. So the court couldn't say, do people get a right to decide about health care? They had to say, do people get the right to decide to kill themselves? One of the most interesting debates on this came in an earlier case called Michael H. versus Gerald D about a neighbor who had slept with this wife, they had a baby, she lived with him, then she went back to her husband. And she lived with another guy, then she went back to her husband. And the, a bunch of the justices wanted to describe the right in the Constitution for the adulterous lover as a right to a relationship with your biological child. And Scalia goes, eh, eh. He goes, if you start with rights that broad, you can find anything. He said, the right at issue, is the right of an adulterous lover to have a relationship with a child despite the laws making the husband the presumed father. He said, and every state in the United States forbids the adulterous lover from having standing to challenge the husband. They just do. He said, so I'm not having you find a constitutional right that's forbidden in all 50 states forever, like you did with abortion. And he got a majority on the holding, even though Justice O'Connor didn't want to go along with them on how narrow you define how to find a non-textual right. Now, what do we have? We knew in Lawrence versus Texas, where um, uh, Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion saying you can't criminalize um, a ban on homosexual sodomy. We knew that he was headed toward a broader description. We knew this from the Casey decision describing how do you find a liberty interest in the Constitution such that you could find a right to abortion. That was described by President Garvey. It was finding an interest in defining the, your, your own self-identity, your conception of the universe, and your place in it. Let me describe to you, and this is very, really amazing, the various ways that I found, there are many of them, in Obergefell that Kennedy said the justices can now go about finding um, non-textual constitutional rights. Number one, they are liberties to define and express your identity. 
Okay, so that's number one. Number two, personal choices central to individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices, that's always his code word for sex since Lawrence, including intimate choices that define your personal identity and beliefs. Uh, number three, this is history and tradition provide guidance and they discipline us in this inquiry, but they do not set its outer boundaries. So he gets rid of the history and tradition test that the court has been using for a very long time. Rather, we respect history and we learn from it, but we do not allow the past to define the present. So we're making it up now. Next, <laughs> new interests reveal discord between the Constitution's central protections and a received legal structure and, must, and lead us to investigate a claim to liberty that must be addressed. So anytime the Constitution doesn't already guarantee you something that you now want, we get to rethink. Um, the, uh, we will not be defined by the world and time of which the constitutional provision was a part. Okay, nothing, I mean, originalism is, is, is out, but so is general observations about what those writers of that part of the Constitution were thinking. History and tradition and other constitutional liberties inherent in intimate sexual bonds. I have no idea what he means by that. <laughs> this is not news. Um, intimate decisions equal personal autonomy. Okay. Um, and then this one is where he asserts that these five people know better. Through a better informed understanding of how constitutional Im imperatives define a liberty that remains, uh, I, sorry, I can't read my own writing, that remains something in our own era, like remains pertinent or something in our own era. Better informed understandings of how constitutional imperatives define a liberty that remains, say, relevant to our own era. Your guess is as good as mine, right? But what it means is five of us tell you. That's really what that all sums up with. Interestingly, you know, one of the, the, the least bullet point news about this case is that it obviously provides an intro to polygamy. But what's interesting is that when he goes back and he says, the assisted suicide cases said you look for very narrow def definitions of the right, you look for them specifically in history, he said, that's good when we're talking about assisted suicide, but it's not good when we're talking about intimacy, sex. Which would lead you to think that there, too, he's leaving open the door because polygamous relationships are also about sex. So he's basically confining narrow definition of the right and history and tradition analysis to assisted suicide and saying it doesn't apply to sex cases. So the third thing is how Justice Kennedy, and I say surgically, and I'll say, tell you why I say that, excise children from all prior cases. In the Windsor case that struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, I did an amicus brief. I have to tell you, and I didn't say this publicly at the time, but I didn't bother filing one here. I knew it was in the bag. I just, why ruin my Christmas over Justice Kennedy? I don't want to ruin, you know, five minutes over what Justice Kennedy might do, let alone my whole Christmas. So I didn't even bother, because I knew he was in the tank once you read Windsor for what it was. Um, but I did submit an amicus brief in Windsor, and I went through every single constitutional family case from the beginning of our country to the last really important one pre-Windsor. And in it, in 100% of cases, 
the court linked a state's interest to marriage to its interest in children. What Justice Kennedy did in his quoting from those same cases is stop the sentence before it got to children. Except, and I'll, tell, I'll explain that in a minute, when it came to children being reared in same-sex house. At that point, he acknowledged children were an interest when the topic of the opinion that he was in was children of those relationships. The one that makes me angriest is he quotes a case named Turner v. Safley, and he says explicitly in Obergefell, Turner v. Safley recognized that what makes a marriage is strictly the commitment between those two people. They were talking about people in prison. And the judge said, you can get married because marriage is about commitment. What he didn't say is there was a footnote dropped right there in that case, where the Supreme Court referred to another case. I cited this, I can't remember the name. It's like Bruce v. Johnson or something. It's in my, um, my amicus brief, where the court says in that lower case, and the Supreme Court affirms, we're not going to give marriage rights to a prisoner who will never get out because he'll never have marriage. Because he, get, does, he doesn't even have the opportunity to have sexual relationships with his wife and children. And so he'll never have marriage, as the state understands. But Turner v. Safley had the possibility of parole, and so we give him marriage because he might have it someday. Kennedy leaves that all out. And he just excises children from every quote from every constitutional family law case. Until he gets to the question, of protecting the rights of children, by which he means only children of same-sex couples. He says that granting same-sex marriage will give them two things. Number one, it will give them a greater sense of their family's integrity and closeness. And number two, it will provide them stability. This is where we see Kennedy, the super amateur sociologist, in play. First of all, I'd like to point out that what he's done is for a guy who, I'm just guessing, hates trickle-down economics, has done trickle-down benefits for children. All former constitutional family law cases gave rights to people regarding marriage because they first had duties to children. Now, you're giving rights to people to marriage and saying that they have no duties to children. In fact, Kennedy explicitly says procreation is unrelated to marriage. Explicitly says that. But with regard to these children, he wants to make the case that we are demeaning them if we don't grant their parents marriage. He says they will have greater stability and family closeness. Couple of problems. The, some of the leading uh, researchers on behalf of same-sex marriage have pointed out that 84% of all children living in same-sex households are from a prior heterosexual relationship by one of the now same-sex partners. 84%. So those children have a legal mother and father. Same-sex marriage has absolutely no impact upon their parenthood. It, it does not marry their parents. Okay. The other 16% are children who are deliberately removed from either their mother, their father, or their both, which he just completely neglects. We also know from the studies in the Netherlands and other parts of Europe that have had this longer than we have that the rates of instability in same-sex marriages are drastically higher than the rates in opposite-sex marriages, to the point where relationships between women Women file 66% of the divorces in the US. Seems to be something about women. You go to Europe, the rate of divorce among uh, same-sex partners who are women is over 70%. And it's nearly 60% among same-sex couples who are men. So this is just all made up. This is just all completely made up. The final point, Kennedy the philosophical anthropologist, Kennedy the sociologist, his statements regarding the immutability of same-sex attraction, 
I don't know, I think the 84% of children living in households where their parents were prior, in prior heterosexual relationships is a data point that you might wish to consider. Um, he also makes statements about immutability, citing the American Psychological Association, and of course they have said just the opposite. They talked about the fluidity, particularly of lesbian um, identification, in addition also a gay identification, but he cites them for immutability when they have said the opposite. Um, my other favorite Kennedy point, and I can't resist, I wasn't going to stick it with him, but he quoted himself again. Um, <laughs> in the Lawrence opinion, the way he puts a right to sodomy into the Constitution is to say, surely people would never be doing this unless they had a more enduring relationship. I call it the there are no one night stands in America line by Justice Kennedy. Okay? <laughs> Kennedy somehow knows this. He cites it again, and he says, this is why the whole constellation of cases that he cites, the right of people to procreate, the right to decide where to send their children to school, the right to marry, this is why same-sex marriage fits in, because surely they would not be having this relationship unless they were intending permanence. Anyway, to conclude, um, the, this is so far from all good constitutional family law. And it's so far from American family law. It doesn't deserve to be called law. It, it isn't. It's, it's sociology, it's anthropology, it's what I love, Justice Scalia called it, the metaphysical aphorisms of a fortune cookie. <laughs> in the best footnote, and, and Scalia has others that are just as good in many family cases. I think um, in some way, the fact that the court rammed this down the throat to 360 million Americans will make it less welcome than if it were democratically passed. I think what it will do sociologically, but I will leave this to the sociologists, but if current trends continue, religious people and wealthy people will have the kind of marriages that everybody wants, right? They will have marriages that stay together more. They will have marriages where the children were born in the marriage and the child is in touch with both parents, more likely. Um, I think this sends a huge cultural message that marriage is this intense emotional high. There was an article in the New York Times today by a single woman saying, hey, you've basically consigned me to emotional low for the rest of my life because you've said only in marriage do people find the sorts of things that you describe. Um, I think it will have bad impacts upon you know, the generation of people that is not yet married or is married with, with ideas that are not really about what marriage is. Um, Marriage was, I don't, I, I don't blame the church as much as some people or the churches generally. Um, marriage was the wallpaper that we all lived with between man and woman. But I do think that the fundamental problem of understanding what is it about men and women that's special. All these sweet lines about marriage is the fundamental unit of society. Marriage is the building block of society. I just want, okay? Never again. I just, why? What is it about the interaction of men and women? We can say it's a reflection of Christ in the church. We can say Christ made his pact with the church when he died on the cross. Okay, we really have to get that across. It's there is something about marriage that reflects who God is, how we're supposed to love, etc., that we're not getting out there. And we have reduced it to to hearts and flowers and, and bridezillas and destination weddings. And um, it's it's going to be a wonderful because I think there's so much great stuff to unpack. Wonderful task to unpack it. And now is the time. I'd like to say now we can stop having all the air in the room taken up by 2% of the, of, the, of the question. 
and go to 98% of the question where most people are struggling. And that is an opportunity. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much. So we'll open the floor up for questions now, if you just raise your hand. So, hi, my name is Mariana Barrias. Um, my question is, I'm trying to understand why this ruling necessarily would lead to approval of polygamy, because if sexuality is a matter of identity, uh, according to Kennedy, polygamous, it's, it's not necessarily, you could argue that restrictions against polygamy are simply a numerical restriction rather than a restriction on sexual expression. So what would your response be to that? I'll start just because I took the quote from the case. They didn't just say it's your identity in terms of your sexual orientation. They said um, it demeans people not to have the personal relationships they want and for the state not to give them the, uh, the approval. They said it demeans people to lock them out of a central institution of society. So it's, they didn't link it specifically to a sexual orientation. They linked it to the sexual relationships you want to have. And what's fascinating, because liberty we usually think is freedom from government intrusion, this liberty means the state has to bless it. They said liberty includes the state blessing the sexual choices you make and the relational choices you make. It was much broader than blessing your sexual orientation. I, uh, I would say much the same thing. Uh, as Helen said, one of the um, worrying things about the jurisprudence of the decision is that the majority's willingness to redefine fundamental rights in whatever way it uh, it deems proper, and uh, when you say that the Constitution gives this kind of extra special protection to rights that are uh, uh, central to your self-definition, to your autonomous understanding of the kind of person you want to be, then all you have to do is say, that's who I am. And, uh, and as one of the dissenters pointed out, uh, actually, there's a much longer tradition of plural marriages than there is of same-sex mm -hmm. marriages. There's been legal sanctions for plural marriages for millennia. So, yeah, I think it's not very far down the road. Could I add one thought, though? In my, I think that the court will find a way, just the same way they said, you know that due process test we used in the assisted suicide cases? We're not going to give you a reason, but we think that's limited to assisted suicide cases. I think they're just going to say history and tradition of polygamy. They're just going to say, oh, no, we use a different due process analysis for those cases. They don't want Justice Roberts and others who predicted that polygamy was included in this to be right. And now, because we know they can do whatever they want, they will find a way to say we have a different way of finding substantive due process rights and it doesn't include polygamy. This, the, the question came right after the Casey decision. Polygamists went all the way up, I think, to the Seventh Circuit and said, hey, look at this part of Casey, self-definition. It totally includes me. And the Seventh Circuit said the right of privacy is not broad enough to include a right of polygamy, period. They didn't put another word. And then the Supreme Court denied cert. They'll do what they please. And if it makes same-sex marriage look more legitimate, 
by denying polygamy, saying, don't worry, we told you it wouldn't lead to it, and now we're going to make it happen that it doesn't lead to it. I think they will. To point out another discrepancy, um, in the contraception and abortion cases, we were told repeatedly that government has no business in the bedroom. And now, in the same-sex marriage case, we want government in there certifying what they're doing. Yeah. Because otherwise, they're just pals. Yeah, I think that was uh, Justice, if I remember which dissent, I think it was Justice Thomas who said, yeah, when did liberty start involving state certification of your relationship, um, no matter what it was and what their intent was? We have a question out here in the bookstore. Uh, some of the legal distinctions that you've made uh, today ha are are lost on a lot of people outside of D.C. who who haven't gone to law school, et cetera. Uh, how do you uh, recommend we respond to uh, people who say, well, the Supreme Court's decided such and such, but they don't really uh, necessarily understand that uh, the things that uh, some of the justices are finding in the 14th Amendment aren't really there? Mm. Do you want, since I've said so much on this, do you want to start on this? I talk so much. <laughs> he's he's got the he's got the bigger book on the topic. <laughs> I don't know that you're going to get very far trying to persuade yeah. people that the court was wrong. I, I because we're right in the middle of this, and because what the court had to say was so much in tune with what people in the culture wanted to hear them say. I think it's only after forty or fifty years of living with it and seeing the results that. Uh, we were able to be a little bit uh, introspective about it. This was the, the, the history of the Supreme Court's uh, practice about substantive due process from the late 1800s until 1937 that Justice Roberts talked so much about. Uh, they got it um, wholeheartedly into the business of, of um, saying what sort of constitutional rights people who were in, um, in business uh, had to be free from government regulation. And after a time they came to realize, everybody came to realize that the court was leading them down the wrong path. But it was, it was a long time before we got there. And I think it's the same way with this. I think uh, at least as, for, the, for, the, for the length of our lifetimes, you're not going to see the court going in a different direction. I think we could also liken it um, to the abortion issue in the sense of it didn't solve the deeper moral and sociological concern and, and lack of commonality of understanding of that. And so I think there we can say perhaps they got it wrong again, the way seemingly legislating and making abortion legal did not solve the deeper question or problems. Can I, can I put it a different way just to, to try out something that I was trying to say in, in my own remarks? Um, the, the culture that uh, young people are growing up in today really looks at sex very differently from the culture that I grew up in or that my parents and grandparents grew up in. I, um, it really is a kind of recreation or fun or um, a demonstration of affection. It's um, the technology that is to say uh, the pill and similar kinds of contraceptive devices have made it possible to separate sex from babies and from 
and, and the reason we had lifelong commitments was that babies were born in them. But uh, we've seen as a result of the, of the pill that uh, families have really broken up and people have sex outside families. And when that sorts of thing, sort of thing starts to happen, then, then uh, um, a decision that validates sexual autonomy is, is so much in tune with what people are saying that they can't really even see what might be wrong with it. Uh, it's, I, I don't even, you know, most people, I, I speak about my own kids. I, uh, some of them think, I mean, these are nice, observant Catholics, pro-life, love the church, and but on this issue, they think, Dad, you're so bigoted. <laughs> it's, yeah, we, it's, it's going to be a real long time before we get outside this. Could I make one point to the question of rights in the Constitution that aren't there, though? I'm a little more aggressive, perhaps, on this. And I think it can be said that even people who agree with the outcome are saying they're embarrassed by the opinion. I think that can be said right now say to people, listen, you know, the Supreme Court has to write an opinion when it invents a new right. Um, notice that, you know, you know, Kagan, Sotomayor, <laughs> I mean, they let Kennedy do the honors. And, um, you know, none of them write a concurrence. Like, I want to affirm whatever that was that he just said. Um, so I think to say that it's evident that they were not, you know, excited to affirm it, but also even people who strongly support same-sex marriage are very unhappy that his legal reasoning was so um, MIA. Um, I think the second thing to say is to just say to people, listen, you know, I'm not trying to be overly lawyerly here, but you know this isn't written in the Constitution, and judges find lots of stuff there, but everybody ought to be concerned about whether five, as Scalia puts it, unrepresentative upper-class East Coast people can hand you things. You may like it today, but you may hate it tomorrow. You know, um, you may feel you got to win today, but they can turn around and do something that makes you feel just as disenfranchised uh, as some other people feel um, by, by finding something else. So I just think it's worthwhile to ridicule the opinion and to find uh, memes in addition to the Klondike bar. My husband has a couple that are not for public consumption. Um, but, but I think it's worthwhile to try and convey to people that this is made up stuff. Question over here. Hello, uh, my name's Ryan Proctor. Uh, so all three of you spoke about the importance of sort of regaining an understanding of what marriage is supposed to be within our own communities, especially because we're not going to have the really the support of the state or the surrounding culture uh, anymore. But I wanted to know if, if there were still um, some options uh, under law that we could use to support the institution of marriage. In particular, I'm thinking of the fact that three states, uh, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Arizona, all have uh, a covenant marriage option where um, it's much harder to get divorced, for example. Uh, and unfortunately, not too many people in those states are currently uh, contracting those marriages. Um, but uh, could is this something that, um, I guess, bishops and parishes in those states uh, should be actively encouraging Catholics who want to wed to, to take advantage of so they understand the gravity of, of the union they're going to enter? 
and is this uh, a legal option that should be pushed in in more states, especially conservative states that are looking for some way to, to productively react to those feelings? So uh, let me be an outlier on this uh, on this question. I I, I think. I approve of the sentiment, but I think it goes in exactly the wrong direction. I, um, this is our standard response to tragedies in America. When there's a shooting in Connecticut, uh, everybody, left, right, center, uh, and in the media, say, how can the federal government assure us that this won't happen again? Well, here's one solution. We'll, we'll ban guns. Wait a minute, Connecticut already did it. Well, we'll ban them everywhere and more vigorously. Uh, or we'll tax people and invest more in mental health services, and that will take care of uh, people who are so, so befuddled or uh, twisted that they do something like this. Really, I think that the solution to shootings like that is to bring up better children. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's not something that the federal government can do. It's actually related to the discussion that we're having today. Nobody ever points out that it's always 18 to 29-year-old boys who are shooting people, and I'll bet you that three-fourths of them don't have dads at home. But, and that's because people don't get married or get unmarried again. But I think that the solution to this sort of thing doesn't lie with the federal government. I think asking the government to solve the problem of marriage is exactly what we got in Obergefell. I think... As I've said to the bishops, it's their job and it's our job to do something about this. I think we have to do this by building good marriages one by one, by setting examples of the kind of virtue that we're demanding of gay people in our own lives and uh, making it something that people begin to admire and want to duplicate. But that's going to be a cultural change and it's something that we're, as Catholics, and uh, uh, responsible for, for leading ourselves. All I want to add is that I don't think that those covenant um, relationships would add anything that one can't find in the sacrament of marriage. Um, as um, one could go the way of Europe, right, where you have to get married in the church and civilly um, in the state because there's not a recognition. Um, so that's that would be out there, um, though there's not been much conversation about that. There, there has. Has it? Okay. Yeah. We can open up. Oh, you question. want to talk about that? Um, <laughs> there's, there's a real dialogue now in, um, oh, mostly Catholic um, uh, publications uh, about should the church continue to act as essentially an agent of the state, which by law recognizes the signature of a Catholic clergy, among all other religious figures, um, to sign a marriage certificate? Now, there's arguments on both sides. Uh, on the one hand, marriage has been, you know, it's been you know steadily emptied of its meaning no-fault divorce being one of the biggest emptyings of it. Now, and that doesn't mean that I think we should go back to the old, you know, strictly fault divorce, hire the executive assistant to portray the adulterous relationship, and then really have a mutual consent divorce. I mean, fault divorce is not the silver bullet. Um, there's a lot to, ha I wrote a lot about that. There's a lot to say about that. But 
the church is already, you know, priests have been signing marriage certificates in a marriage system where some states have no waiting periods to get a marriage license. Um, some, you know, uh, uh, no-fault divorce makes that piece of paper worth a lot less than your cell phone contract. <laughs> a lot less in terms of trying to get out of it. I mean, this has been observed by many. Um, so are we already participating in a rather corrupt definition of marriage, right? Um, so is this, though, the last straw? Is this the last straw, that we don't even recognize the reality of two sexes, the special relationship of them? I mean, Pope Francis put it so fabulously a couple of weeks ago. He said, I wonder if the crisis of belief in God is tied to the crisis of belief in the alliance of the man and the woman. He said, Genesis says no, you know, no less than three times. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them for the one flesh union. He says, I, I think they're tied up here. You know, people don't believe in one, they don't believe in the other, it's vice versa. So what do we gain by saying, we're going to have a Catholic wedding, but if you want the state to recognize your wedding, you go get the state uh, ceremony like they do in South America, like they do in parts of Europe. Um, you, you get a nice statement, you know, public statement, that our marriage is really something quite different. And that may, there may come a point where we want to say that. It'd be nice if what we were saying was more than it's never same sex, right? We would, it would be great if what we were saying is, we really have this full appreciation of what is special about this alliance between the man and the woman that somehow is supposed to reflect the person of God and the way he loves us, including dying for us, this incredible sacrificial relationship where we were responsible for the other person. It would be great if that's what it was saying. If we do it now as a, you can be sure it's not a same-sex union. <laughs> um, yes, we can. But I'm just not sure that uh, that's what that's all we want to say. So uh, Archbishop Chapu and I have been back and forth on this a couple times, and I've been back and forth in a couple of couple of publications on it. I'm, I, for me, I guess I still haven't seen the case for getting out completely. We we didn't get out when they eviscerated marriage, you know, in the 70s. Um, is this the moment? I just I want to. We have time for one more question, and it's out here in the bookstore. Thank you, three, for thinking through this and kind of sharing your knowledge with us on this. Uh, we, it's kind of been hit on before as well. As Catholics, we don't define marriage based on what the Supreme Court justices say. And one rebuttal that it's often said is, well, how does this impact you? How does this impact you guys as Catholics? Can you kind of help me better articulate how do we respond to that? And how do we respond not as alarmists, but what do we, ex how do we expect this to impact society? It's been kind of hit on already how this will affect children, but what else are you expecting? Is that going to be religious liberty issues? I'd like to hear that as well. You go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I think in, I think this is the very opportunity where we have a chance to, um, to give a witness to our own faith and to be able to say, this is what I believe marriage is. I think what always is most compelling to people begins in your own story and their ability to see that you really believe what the church teaches for a particular reason. Um, to Helen's point, we need to be better at talking about, well, what does make 
a sacramental marriage different? Where is that experience of grace that maybe can't be found in other places? And so that takes us reflecting on our own story, on our own experience, um, either of um, our parents' marriage or our own marriage or what we're hoping to look for um, in the spouse. I think for us to talk about the service and the vocational aspects of marriage are really helpful because those are, those are two words um, that um, haven't quite been co-opted yet um, that, that are really at the heart of what we believe about marriage. And so changing, moving away from, well, defining love as service and, and vocation to what? Vocation to this faithful and, and fruitful. I think that that's a helpful start in terms of our own personal testimony. Um, I'm going to let President Garvey maybe talk about what could be down the road by way of legal issues related to this. I think there's a bunch of legal issues queuing up. I, uh, um, uh, it, it isn't something, I mean, when, when we first started to talk about um, about gay sex to, to begin with, that even before we got into marriage, the argument usually was, well, look what two people do in the privacy of their bedroom isn't going to affect you. And the same argument has been has been rolled out with marriage, but but I think it's not true. I mean, uh, uh, for example, I, uh, what about religious institutions like my own or like Catholic charities? Um, uh, I, I think that most of us are are uh, feel the way the Catholic Church does that we shouldn't discriminate against people on the basis of their sexual orientation and who we hire or uh, uh, who we promote or what sort of work we give them to do. Um, it's a different thing when somebody gets married and asks you to support uh, their uh, union uh, when it's something that the church frowns on. So what about um, spousal benefits? Uh, does, does, is there uh, the problem that the, the Catholic moralists call cooperation with evil in, in providing financial support to a union that you think is not the way it ought to be? Um, that's one kind of problem. During the argument for the uh, before the Supreme Court, the Solicitor General was asked by Justice Alito, "What about tax exemptions for uh, religious institutions that um, frown on the view that uh, you're arguing for?" And he said, "Well, that's uh, that's going to be an issue." The Supreme Court decided, oh, I don't know, 35 years ago, in a case called Bob Jones, that. Uh, that institutions that discriminated on the basis of race, uh, Bob Jones University was the case before the court, uh, weren't entitled to tax exemptions under the Internal Revenue Code and contributions to them were not tax deductible under the Internal Revenue Code. Should we treat sex the way we, uh, sexual orientation the way we treat race, in which case Catholic University and the Archdiocese of Washington would lose their tax mm -hmm. exemptions? Well, that's, that's pretty serious business. Um, Third, what about government grants and contracts and so on? The president just last July um, issued an executive order uh, saying that people who contracted with the federal government couldn't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender expression or identity. So if Catholic University has, has um, government grants and contracts, as we do, are we not allowed to discriminate on the basis of uh, gender identity and assigning people to dormitory rooms. Uh, that's uh, that's a question that, uh, that we might very well face. Um, we've had disputes uh, in the last few years about 
uh, student groups at the university. You know, there, there's a difference, I think, between students uh, having clubs that they want and, and the university giving official recognition to, you know, the Catholic University of America's uh, X or Y organization. What, um, should we give the same kind of recognition to gay and lesbian student groups as we do to college Democrats or Estovir? Uh, it's a question that might become a legal question as a result of this decision. Others, uh, these are the ones that strike me most um, immediately because they're the ones that affect Catholic University. But I'm sure that there are a hundred that Judge Diocese is worried about. Please join me in thanking our speakers this evening for offering their expertise and insights.